You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 72 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Thursday, the 31st of December, 2020. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Will Forster. Hello, everybody. Jesse Carnes. Hello, and Happy New Year's Eve, everybody. And Rue Hill. So I feel like this episode is going to be the perfect Surf Simply Venn diagram of stuff that our podcast listenership really likes. We've got uh, some... YouTube content that we've put out, some surf coaching stuff. We've got an interview with John Roseman, who uh, was one of the owners of Tavarua in Fiji and is the on the pretty much the biggest waves on any given day uh, when it's like 30-foot-plus cloud break. We've got an interview with Professor Sam Perkis about marine sciences, and we've got a little cameo from Asha coming back later on in the show. Um, but first of all, we wanted to talk a little bit about what we've been up to since we were last on air. We have been off the air podcast-wise for a long time, but we have actually probably had our most productive year in terms of making content. But uh, as some of you may know, it's all over on our YouTube channel. I feel like, uh, you know, we get a lot of technical surfing questions coming in, and there's a, lot of <laughs> there's a lot of times in the podcast where we're sitting here in a room together, like waving our hands around, describing things, and then we're sort of like, oh, yeah, it's an, an audio format. That's not really going to work. So anyway, a lot of that stuff we've now got over on YouTube, and it all started, I guess, when... The lockdown began and we were trying to think about, you know, what we could pivot to to remain productive and sane. And uh, Will started producing the Surfing Explained series. The first video I did was uh, I just did a stick figure nose riding and thought it would be interesting because I was learning to kind of do um, almost like stop motion animation just as a bit of a hobby outside of coaching. Um, and I made a very simple stop motion video of a lady nose riding and just put some coaching points with it. And it was about 10 seconds long. I just did it as like a, a, a uh, Instagram story for the, for the Surf Simply page. Um, and it, it, people seem to enjoy it. And Harry and I, we've always talked about how animations are, you know, so useful for us for, for coaching content. Um, and because I was, you know, I got kind of hooked on learning animation um, and then the lockdown happened, we thought, well, we need to kind of spend our time doing something. Um, and so it kind of, I just sort of ran with it. Um, and we just decided, you know, I, myself and Harry particularly are huge YouTube fans. You know, we follow lots of like en uh, Engineering Explained and Chain Bear, my two kind of, you know, cars and Formula One. And that's how long it took everyone for Will to get Formula One into the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, and both of those have lots of kind of animation in, particularly Chain Bear. It's a really great YouTube channel. Um, and so I took a lot of inspiration from that. And there isn't any, you know, I think Ted did one of, of the science of surfing or the physics of surfing, which was more of a cartoony style rather than the kind of more typical or traditional animation style like physics videos that you sometimes see online so i just took a bit of a mix of the two and and you know figured i'd try one for surfing it's funny the the for people those are the listeners that have come to the resort and have stayed at the resort we have uh some animations that were made for us a few years ago by uh by a gentleman named cliff who uh, and the style that we kind of settled on actually was i, I want to say it might even have been slightly pre um that engineering explained and you know those YouTube videos 
but it was do you remember scrap heap challenge yeah yeah do you remember the, the little print diagram right yeah. that was the inspiration that i had <laughs> for the animation style that that cliff ended up using in the animations that we have for our board design lecture and our forecasting lecture and things like that so yeah it was it was it was kind of a nice seamless transition into the animations that you were making because it was that that same kind of animated blueprint style it's so funny you say scrappy challenge because robert llewellyn mm. who presented that now presents fully charged which yeah. is a youtube electric car show which is amazing yeah um yeah full circle there there you go yeah <laughs> just kind of backing up a little bit like it was cool how it all kind of started you know like i just remember like will and will was like staring at me and he was like i want to create a youtube channel and then I think it was like Harry, Rue, and I, we were sitting around the resort and you were like, why don't we bring like the whiteboard Wednesdays back, but like shorter. Um, and that's when Quick Tips, which is one of the videos we have on our YouTube channel came out. And then all of us was like, Harry, you have to do something because Harry's like surfing mind is just so incredible and so fun. So we were like, all right, let's get question time from Harry because Harry's so good. You're so good on the spot. I like answering all these complex questions and that's how we kind of, yeah. We had those three things. So, so we have five separate series sitting on the YouTube channel yeah. now. The first one was the Surfing Explained Animated series that Will did, uh, which is mostly to do with like the physics of how surfboards and waves, and I think Finn's is the most viewed one that we had. Yeah, it's there. had 85,000 views. That one's so and awesome. Then, and, then, yeah, yeah. And, I, and then I did a Quick Tips series, which was all edited by Jesse. And you know, one thing we always try and do at Surf Simply is we really make sure that the coaching we're doing is precisely not Quick Tips, that it's actually like a structured coaching program, you know, versus quite often when you go for a more conventional surf lesson, it's just reactive tip giving in the water. But anyway, the idea with these is that they were exactly that, just these little bite-sized Quick Tips. Um, and I stood in front of a camera and kind of waffled for like about eight hours. <laughs> and then Jesse looked at my face and edited them all together. Into, uh, so, you know, you deserve all the credit for the heavy lifting on that. And then Harry did a question time series where he was responding to all the comments in the other videos. And then we had Andre, yes. who does yeah. our stretch uh, sessions at Surf Simply all the way through the week, which, you know, f as guests will know, is... It's sort of based on yoga, but we kind of pulled out a lot of the stuff that was a little pseudoscientific, and now it's more like surf-specific stretch sessions. So she's done a series on them, and then Teal, one of our coaches, uh, has done a sort of strength and mobility for surfing series. So those are all sitting up there and a resource for people to use. And I think we passed a million views, which was kind of a landmark that we're all pretty proud of. So cool. Yeah, I just want to go back to like Teal and Andre's, um, their, their playlist on our YouTube channel. They're... They're sort of like we've well one we had lots of requests. I think when lockdown happened, everyone was like, we need to work out and we need to be healthy and exercise. And um, so they 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 ended up putting that out there. And um, it I like it because Teals is like a series and it follows like our tree of knowledge, which listeners I'm sure you guys know about. But it follows essentially like our program of like coaching and and, and what we coach at Sir Simply. So it's. It's such a cool, it's such a cool series. And then Andres is like, okay, have you been surfing too much and you're sore? All right, here's this series to help with like those surfing muscles. So it's, it's really fun. And then on top of that, you get to know their personalities too, which I think is the most important. Like Andre, her like sarcastic punk ass attitude is like in there. And then um, Teal's just like drill sergeant coaching is in there too so it's like cool to see a little bit of them as one well one of the most impressive things that i saw was when you two when and harry sat down and did your live question time 
Yeah, well, that was Will's. Uh, that was Will's idea, which I was a little skeptical of. Mm. But <laughs> I think I think we broadly speaking pulled it off. Probably so. Yeah. yeah, we got some good feedback on it. And although my mum was really angry at me because I, my role in that uh, during that live broadcast was more like tech support, but I was in the video, uh, it, you know, yeah. within camera shot. But I was, te- you know, I was kind of just throwing Harry questions as they were coming in from the viewers. Um, and towards the end, I was like starting then to prepare closing down the live feed and so i just walked off camera and then never said anything and my <laughs> mum was like yeah i enjoyed it will but where did you go did you <laughs> <laughs> i loved it i like while you guys were doing that I had you guys like up on the big screen and i like, had a cup of coffee like watching you guys i thought it was really really i've fun. had a couple of people um send me just screenshots because uh, i think uh, like most people now have a smart tv you know that uh, one way and another that is capable of playing youtube and people with me on their big TVs <laughs> in their room, which is a slightly, like it's always slightly surreal to think, you know, it's very humbling the number of people that, that tune in and listen to this podcast. But it, it's, it's a slightly abstract figure, you know, it's th- this is the four of us sitting in a room uh, with masks on, you'll be glad to know listeners, uh, if the sound is funny. But you know, this is the four of us sitting in a room um, talking to each other and there's, there's, there's not, you don't get that, feedback in the same way that that you know suddenly being aware that there's lots of people sitting watching you on youtube and getting the 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 feedback from it but but yeah having having a few of my friends send me pictures of me on their television in their living room was very surreal (laughs) i tell you what really impressed me about that is you know when when i do a dive into something on this show I usually spend like four to eight hours like digging to make sure i've got all my facts you know um, but on that live question time, it was a reminder to me, Harry, how you have it all just held in the front of your brain at all times. Yeah, well, I don't know that it's all 100% accurate. <laughs> 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 I mean, with the, with the other question time ones, the nice thing was, like, I would normally prep them the night before, and I'd like, okay, I'm going to do those questions, and oh, actually, I'm just going to check that statistic or that fact or that number and just, like, make sure that I refresh it. And obviously with this, Will was feeding me questions that were literally coming in in the moment. So I was having to be a, a bit more careful about what I was saying and just to, uh, in my own head be processing it and go, am I sure of that? I don't know that I am, so I'm not going to say it because <laughs> uh, I couldn't fact check myself on the fly. I th- actually, I think, did, didn't I? I, I did fact check I haven't watched it. We, as I as had, we you fact checked a couple yeah. of things for me, didn't yeah, you, as we went through it? John John's soft top brand surfboard that was, was, the, that was one it. particular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually have a few, uh, my th- kind of three favorite comments uh, from <laughs> our YouTube uh, careers, if anyone's interested in them. Yeah. <laughs> this is like the most. I Will told me he was going to do this on the podcast, and I was like, I cannot wait. Oh to hear well, these actually, they're th- so, so good. Since we've talked about it, I, so there was one particular one that I pulled that I was gonna say, but then completely uh, wussed out on it because it was. <laughs> I was. I wanted the, this to almost be more of a positive experience than there was one particular <laughs> comment, where it, and it was uh, after maybe the first three or four videos so we started to get a few more views and things like that and i'm not going to say it on 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 air because it's full of expletives 
Um, but I'll, I'll maybe share it with you guys after. But I've <laughs> got some slightly f what I think are more on the funny side than on the mean side because the internet is such a wild and wonderful place. I don't feel you can tease the listeners with that and then not say it. We can always beep it. Yeah, come on, say okay, it. Okay, hang on, let me just... Yeah, I want at least one. Give her a reason to use his bleep machine. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. The, one, the one that's the... I'll have to, I haven't got it written down. Um, oh, I do have it written down. Worst comments. Hi, Surf Simply. You guys are f***ing kooks. Why don't you go smoke a f***ing joint, you nerds? <laughs> <laughs> I think... Um, I feel like that's a compliment. <laughs> the other ones, these ones are kind of ones I picked out where I think are a little bit, you know, more more friendly, I guess. But there's a YouTuber called Susie Cruz, and she's like a van life blogger. And she wrote one on one of Harry's videos, um, which is not similar to the next two that I'll read. But she's got a load of subscribers quite popular on there. And she wrote on Harry's video, you are the cutest, nerdiest surfer ever. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh -huh. my favorite one, yeah. for sure. My favorite one on the Quick Tips videos uh, to Rue was, are you Mick Jagger's son? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then someone wrote on, uh, on one of the Surfing Explained videos, how did you make those? animations did you sh in the path of a Roomba <laughs> 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 um, most of the feedback was great but they're the they're kind of the most entertaining ones the outro music to the quick tips video was a <laughs> was a song that oh, yeah. I made when I was a teenager like in my bedroom like playing with old jazz records that had just been sitting on my hard drive for like 20 years and I always had aspirations to become like you know some cool music producer uh, and unfortunately i'm completely shit at it so that was like the main problem <laughs> but this one and then someone i had one comment i was going through all the comments and they're really like lots of lovely ones and then someone just wrote wow that's a cool tune at the end what's that and i like told every i screenshotted it and said to everyone in my family <laughs> everyone that i know just like finally the artistic recognition i have been craving I'm assuming it was Marine with an online pseudonym. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of your guys' uh, favorite episodes that you're, you're most proud of or most enjoyed or would point people to? Um, I'll go first. So I'm going to pick quick tip ones because I put all my work and effort into it. <laughs> um, so my, f I guess my first favorite one is it's titled How Not to Teach a Surf Lesson. And I think it's because, well, one, like, Every time I give a first surf lesson, the person is just like so confident and happy. So if that information could be out there on the internet and to share with anyone who is a surf coach or a surf instructor, to give that information to then their student, it's very special. So um, That's funny. That was actually the same one that I had written down to pick. And it's not, it's not like the most viewed one by quite a long way. It's had less than 10,000 views, but... Um, you know, for listeners who aren't familiar with, with what that would be as a concept, you know, the traditional surf lesson first time in the water is sort of stand up on the board. And the way that we do it is much more to do with how do you get the board to do what you want it to do, where all the, how do you stall it, accelerate it, change direction, and then standing up becomes something that you do so you can do that better. And like, you know, it's of everything that we do at Surf Simply that's a bit different to the way surfing is conventionally taught, I feel like that first lesson is the most marked departure from the conventional way of teaching. And, you know, it consistently, everyone who's had a surf lesson before and then does that goes, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know yeah. that before. Yeah. And yeah. so many people have tried to get their partner or their kids to surf and has managed to like not instill in them the same enthusiasm that they have and have felt really frustrated and have brought them along to us and then they've had a really positive experience. So this one was really for if you surf and you want to know how to teach someone that you love to surf with 
you know, and have a productive time that's fun for them, you know, this is, this is really how to do it. So yeah. I, I thought that was one of my favorite nuggets to have put out into the world that I'm not aware was really out there before. Didn't we almost called it like how to, you know, like whenever you're teaching your partner, like something new, it always ends up so badly. And you and I, like, we tried to figure out like what to call it. We were like, should we call it like how to teach your your partner how you know without fighting or something like that without getting in an argument? Yeah, how to teach your partner how to surf without getting divorced. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I do like. I wonder if it doesn't have as many views on it is because it is ten minutes long. Um, I did cut it down from probably a twenty minute. Uh, <laughs> Jesse, can I just say to you here officially, I am so sorry for how many hours you have had to spend looking at my face. I had hours. It's okay. It was right in the middle of quarantine. Um, but yeah, it is 10 minutes long. Um, and usually I feel like when people are going through YouTube and they see like a 10 minute long video, maybe they go to the next one or whatever, but it's totally worth watching it. Um, there's even a funny part in there too that I stole from, what's that movie? Oh, Remember the yeah, part yeah, in yeah, it? From uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it has that part in it. So I think that's pretty funny. I added a little humor in there. Um, but yeah, that, that would be like my first favorite one. And then I have my second one. The second one's more of a... Well, it's all technical surfing, but it's back foot positioning, um, or that's what it's titled. And I like it the most because I feel like when I'm coaching level threes or level fours, this is like the the biggest thing that I see is people's or surfers' back foot placement is always mm. off. And that's one of the quick tips ones series as well. Exactly. Yeah, it's one of the quick tip series ones. Um, so yeah, it's like every time we get a shortboarder that comes to Surf Simply, the first video like session with them, the video analysis ses session, I'm like your back foot is way too far forward on the traction pad and that's why you're not turning the board. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like that's one of the big, if you look at people who are surfing out the back independently on their own and surfing down the line at most average beach breaks, that's probably the one single uh, like limiting factor that stands in most people's way. Yeah, like in, in front, you know, we, we have a front foot placement one to come out soon. It's not out yet, but um, you know, foot placement is just so important with, with shortboarding especially. Um, and I feel like you describe like putting your back foot like right next to the kicker of the traction pad. And I just feel like as soon as surfers get their foot back, turning becomes so much easier, more technical, less like sort of cheating the turn, like less forced. And yeah, I think it's just such a good, a good video. And I had like probably the most fun looking up clips for that too. As weird as that sounds, like I was just going through like all of Jamie O'Brien's videos and like, where's his back foot? Where's his back foot? And every time it was like right by the, the kicker of the traction pad. So yeah, those are my, my two favorites. My favorite was, uh, is a Surfing Explain video, but it's the version that someone else took and turned it into Russian. Oh yeah, I forgot about uh, that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, which was uh, certainly very interesting. Now, unfortunately I don't speak Russian, so we have no idea what he was saying. He may have been saying some, something completely different, but we actually had a Mandarin version and a Russian version of some of the videos, um, which I thought was quite, quite interesting. Yeah, we actually, um, we actually had a guy reach out from a surf club in Taiwan asking if he could, you know, add uh, Mandarin subtitles to the videos, but I don't speak Mandarin. So I was like, that, that's great. And he did it. And then I was like, before I hit publish, I want to just check that, it, you know, what he's written makes some kind of sense. So I reached out to like anyone that I might know that speak Mandarin, which isn't very many people. And one of my friends was like, oh, I have a friend who works at NASA that speaks Mandarin. So I ended up sending the videos off to NASA to have them check the subtitles and sending them back, which I thought was kind of cool. <laughs> We're that cool. Yeah. We're that cool. <laughs> 
Um, my favorite video is the one I did on longboard outlines. Um, it's not the most viewed or anything like that, but it was just, I, I got a lot of the information from Asher. Um, cause he's obviously the longboard you king. Know, the, the Asher longboard king. king. Whoa. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and I felt that it, it, the the information that Asher gave lended itself so well to an animated version because we we're moving the wide point forward and back and and you know showing the differences between rail engagement and you know sometimes that's a little tricky to explain um, if you don't have any kind of visual aids and even being having to rely on drawing it in person on a whiteboard is always a little bit tricky um, and so that I felt was just the it was the perfect media or medium. Media, media, <laughs> uh, to to offer up that information. I felt it just it becomes so clear to a lot of people. And we've had some great feedback on that. Guests who have come who have watched those videos a couple of times. People have said specifically, "Oh, the one about longboard outlines was was really interesting." So, um, yeah, I like all the the comments on one of the videos where you say "rubber duck." Oh my god! Because I like I'm so used to your like accent and obviously the way you talk. And it was so funny how many people commented like rubber duck and how you like pronounced it it was so yeah. funny it that was the most comments of any video <laughs> on the rubber yep. duck yep. <laughs> yeah. um i think i you know i the one i'm proudest of was the live stream that you and i did we had to you know we came in the day before and did like a whole bunch of tests because it's like doing live television is completely different like you can't stop and start again you know if you explain something badly or you do a drawing that's not very accurate you just have to kind of muscle through and keep going or when you forget to plug the mics in <laughs> or when yeah. you forget uh, to plug the microphones <laughs> in right at the start yeah and, like, and actually listeners i will say harry and i have recorded several hours of of great podcasting stuff where harry just didn't record it yeah <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah, how is it that the most clumsy of all of us is the person <laughs> that seems to be in charge of all the tech stuff? <laughs> anyway, like you said, well, um, you and me are both kind of YouTube fanatics. You know, we'll go home and lock ourselves in our rooms and just watch weird YouTube videos. And I've seen quite a few of the people that I, you know, really admire and really aspire towards talking about how terrifying doing a live broadcast was. And I feel like ours was pretty good <laughs> you know like like uh, watching some guys that have you know millions of followers and and you know huge amounts of technical know-how and knowledge and and you know almost a semi-professional crew and i feel like i feel like ours was pretty good by you know alongside that but actually the, the the other thing that i would say i am most proud of is actually none of the episodes at all but is the fact that when i would go through each week i'd have to go through the all the comments which, you know, normally on YouTube is a pretty terrifying space to enter <laughs> or anywhere on the Internet. And actually what I really liked is that for the most part, there was almost like a real supportive community starting to happen within the comment streams of these videos because people were asking questions that they obviously didn't have an outlet to ask those questions in. And maybe it's one of the ones that I'm able to answer, but even if it isn't, quite often another person would chime in and 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 put an answer in and that that building that community was wonderful and i i have to say i was completely passive in that because uh as most of the listeners probably know i'm hugely dyslexic and the idea of sitting down and trying to write a reply to all of those answers was just so intimidating to me you know it, it would take me 45 minutes to answer each comment so i, I just decided i'm not going to do any i'm not going to answer any of them in person I'll i'll answer the ones that i can do online as and when i can 
but yeah to just see that 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 whole community develop yeah. is is i think really cool mm -hmm. uh, yeah i felt the same thing reading through the comments on all of our videos uh, the one thing that struck me is i was like wow these are all like good faith comments and good faith questions you know, I mean, I mean, we were joking about like the negative snarky ones, but I mean, it was just, it was, it, it felt, it feels like such a nice little online community that, that has sort of evolved around all the yeah. content that we've put out. Yeah. And you know what else we, um, going back just to, or I don't know if we talked about it, but you know, the online coaching and then some of those people that were like in the comments, like were writing questions and all that, they started to come into the online coaching and like getting, it was cool to meet them in person too. So yeah, it was, uh. Mm -hmm. It's been cool when people go from commenters to doing online coaching to then coming and staying with us at the resort to then becoming like really good friends. Like that's, that's such a cool journey. If there's one thing that the Surf Simply podcast listenership like more than the Venn diagram where science and surfing overlap, then that thing is Asher. Asher King, former host and Surf Simply coach. Uh, we miss him. We love him. And he came back down to visit a couple of weeks ago uh, and he brought with him this beautiful asymmetrical surfboard uh, that was shaped by Donald Brink, the uh, South African shaper who's now living in California. And Asher and Donald had been working together for, for a while now making these asymmetrical boards. Anyway, long story short, I managed to convince Asher to leave that board down here with me when he went home. And actually, I got a really nice message from uh, Donald Brink about it on WhatsApp. So I, I know you're a listener to the show, Donald. So thank you so much for that board. It has uh, raised my froth levels of, on, sur on surfing through the roof. It's been so much fun. Uh, and it's really got me interested in asymmetrical boards because, you know, everything up to this point has been theory. This is the first time I've really got to play with one. And it's fantastic. Now, what you may not know, listeners, is while you guys have been missing Asher as he's not been on the podcast, uh, me and Asher leave each other these long, waffly WhatsApp audio messages that kind of a little mini podcasts, kind of like one person podcasts. So uh, I get my own personal Asher podcasts delivered into my WhatsApp inbox on a fairly regular basis. And uh, and and, the, and we've been chatting a bit about this asymmetrical board and, you know, I just wanted to share with you our, our, our kind of conversation about it. And I, I asked Asher if he could talk about two things. The first one was, you know, how this asymmetrical board and asymmetrical boards more broadly work. And also if he felt that they would one day just be the norm. Um, because, you know, human beings are not symmetrical, or at least when you're standing sideways, as you do on a surfboard, we're not symmetrical. And so having a symmetrical surfboard doesn't necessarily seem like the most obvious uh, solution to the best way to ride waves. Anyway, enough from me. This is what Asha had to say. So when we're talking about asymmetry in a surfboard, I think a good starting place is to just define actually why we would do it. Um, the way asymmetry was originally described to me was um, to either go left or to go right, right? It was a, it was a board for a, a specific direction, but that's actually not true. Um, the board is designed for either a goofy foot or a regular foot. So it's, it's stance specific. Uh, when you look down at your foot, right, it's, it's pretty clear right away that the amount of pressure that you can apply on your toes is different than the amount of pressure that you can apply on your heels, your toes are going to get far more leverage. Uh, and even more important, your, your toes have an ability to apply a lot of different degrees of pressure on the, the rail of the surfboard, 
right? Whereas your heel is kind of a clunky, blunt object. When you're standing up on a surfboard, you basically get one amount of pressure that you can apply. You're either, you know, sitting on your heels or you're not. And the asymmetry in the surfboard, if you strip everything away, is just designed to compensate for that, right? It makes turning on your heels easier while it allows you to press harder onto your toes. Um, I was really fortunate to meet Donald Brink when I first moved to San Clemente because I didn't know anything about this space. And he's definitely been my surfboard shaman guiding me through it. Uh, the board you have has a lot going on, right? Rather than either, even being just stance-specific, um, the asymmetry allowed us to, to really push in a more extreme direction. Now, what I mean by that is our inspiration was the surfing that, you know, some of the top pros did in the late 90s, right? They were riding these super narrow surfboards. Uh, they were a little bit longer, and it, it had this really beautiful, connected look when it all came together. But as anybody who's surfed the boards in the 90s knows, they're not always that great, right? When they're not in the sweet spot, they have this nasty tendency to, to, to dig a rail or to sink down. You know, it, it, they weren't the best boards in the world. So what we tried to do was make a surfboard that had all the good things about those 90 boards uh, while kind of compensating for some of the bad. So the starting point was the width. We really wanted a narrow surfboard, but we didn't want to go too far down on volume, right? You make it narrow and you, you lose quite a bit of foam off the outline. So if you're looking at this surfboard uh, that Donald made, it, it has a really straight appearing outline, right? The rails don't have too much curve. It, it, it holds its width uh, from nose to tail, which is great. You know, It allows you to fit more foam in a narrower surfboard. Now, the, the downside of that straight outline is gonna be that it is harder to turn, right? It, it, your turning radius is, matches the curve of the surfboard. So if you straighten the outline, it, you're going to lose quite a lot of turning radius. Uh, so what we did is, is on the more difficult to turn side, so the heel side, for us, you, you and I, if you're looking at the surfboard, the right side, the, the board has a substantially different curve on the tail, right? It's way rounder. It's about a half inch narrower. Uh, and it just compensates, right? It allows you to turn easy on the side that's sort of difficult to. Um, in addition, we, we increase the thickness a bit while still thinning it out in both the nose and the tail. So if you were to look at the surfboard horizontally, uh, there's a lot of curve coming from the reduction of the foam. So the top line is pretty straight and the bottom line is very curved. It's almost like a boat sitting in the water. So uh, I, I know this is probably tough to visualize for some of the listeners out there. So uh, I hope you'll throw a photo in the show notes, uh, as I'm sure you will, um, to, to sort of visualize what we're talking about. And there's a bunch of other special sauce in there. There's channels on the bottom, um, the wide points actually tilted, uh, and all that really comes from Donald's experience. He's been doing this for, you know, most of his professional career. Um, so he, he does have a, a real ability to take all the word vomit in a surfer's head and, and translate it into something that's not only beautiful, but that actually works in the water. So I, I got to defer a lot of the, the credit on this one to him. 
As to whether asymmetric designs are, you know, the next big thing or the next revolution in surfboard design, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it is a revolution in surfboard design. I mean, the, the shapes that Donnie's making, and I, I really do think he's on the forefront of it. Uh, the, the boards that Ryan Birch is making, I mean, they're cutting edge and the surfing that people are doing on them really validates it as, you know, these, these things work. I mean, even in your experience, Rue, I mean, it's pretty obvious. They don't just look cool and look exciting. They are, they are really functional surfboards. Um, the difficult thing about asymmetry is it's obviously stance specific. So it's made for either a goofy foot or a regular foot. And as anyone would know who's tried to buy a surfboard in COVID times, it's already hard enough to keep up with capacity, right? There's a lot of people that want surfboards and it's already tough enough to get one that's the right height and width and thickness than what you're looking for. Now, if you're you know having to calibrate for if it's a goofy foot or regular foot surfboard, you know that's just another element. And in surf shops and online retailers, they're already having a really difficult time keeping up with demand. So I don't know if these boards will ever be, you know, the the run down to your shop and just pick up a board style of surfboard. I think that they are going to be an extension of the custom surfboard process. Um, we're lucky, you know, in surfing we can get equipment that's tailor made towards us. Why not go all the way and, and allow it to, to help you with what your personal faults are in your surfing or what you specifically want to be working on? Uh, one of the things that Donald works on and that I've found a lot of enjoyment in is when we're designing the board, he really wants a lot of feedback about your surfing level, you know, how wide your stance is, what specific next maneuvers you want to be working on. Uh, you know, what things are you already really good at? Uh, and, and that all factors into the design elements of where he can kind of push it and where he needs to pull it back um, towards your ability level. So it, it's bespoke. And with bespoke, you know, is it's at the, the sacrifice of volume. So I, I, I sort of think it'll be sort of a smaller, more unique to you market. But I mean, it is so much fun working with a shaper who can, you know, take all of the word vomit and all your ideas and really shape it into something that's that's functional for you. And I think it applies well to coaching because everybody's working on different stuff. Everyone has different limiting factors. And um, I think there's a lot of area to overlap coaching and surfboard design. And, and, and asymmetry seems ripe for that to me. So, yeah. If any of the listeners want to learn more, um, everything I learned, as I've kind of rambled on about, I learned from Donnie. So I, I would point you to him. His Instagram account has some beautiful stuff. And yeah, just have, have an open mind because although these boards do look pretty wild and, and pretty out there, uh, they're all rooted in function. Um, and every curve, everywhere that something's changed, it, it does have a purpose. So I don't know. There's a lot to unpack and, and there's a, a lot to learn. And yeah, it'll be, it's a fun journey. So you may remember that in our last episode, which was actually all the way back in May 2020, when we were just uh, like a month or so into the first wave of COVID and the uh, border had just been closed a few weeks previously here in Costa Rica and the resort had shut down. 
Um, and we spent a few minutes on the on the podcast talking about our approach to that whole situation, which is very different from the travel industry standard. And I won't go into all of that again right now, but you know, you, you may enjoy going back and, and listening to that if you want to understand our thinking a little bit more. But I did want to follow up because a lot of people then reached out and asked um, asked me to explain in more detail how we dealt with specifics. And um, I, I guess the, the, the follow-up, you know, 10 or 11 months later as we come out the other side of, uh, of, of the crisis, or hopefully we're coming out the other side of it now, is that, number one, the 300-odd guests that were not able to come to Surf Simply during that sort of six-month shutdown, um, and most of whom lost most of what they had paid uh, for all the reasons that I, I went into on the last episode, uh, the reaction was overwhelmingly incredibly supportive. And um, that is not what the travel industry standard would dictate would have happened. So, you know, I, I, I'm i very grateful to be part of such a wonderful community of podcast listeners and of guests who've stayed with us at the resort. Um, but I, I hope that more than that, that was a reflection of of the fact that, that we were sort of thoughtful and, and trying to be ethical as well as financially sustainable in the way that we approached it. I will say that we had, I think, in the end, three out of 300-odd guests, so sort of less than 1% of our guests push back, um, which I feel okay with. And, you know, we even had some guests reach out and, you know, offer financial support, which was, you know, really, really overwhelming. Um, you know, we did learn some lessons. Uh, one of the things that I emphasised when we last talked about this was that whatever policy you have, whatever cancellation policy you have as a, as a small business owner, as a travel operator, the most important thing is that it's very clear and upfront and, um, you know, stuff is not hidden away in small print. So that was something that we felt we had done well. And I, I think we did a good job of it. But going forwards, we've actually now created a video version of our cancellation poly that sits alongside the written version so that it's, you know, even clearer. I just think you can't make that too easy for people. And it's not the most glamorous and sexy part of booking a new trip. But, you know, as we learned in 2020, it's just so important to get that right. Going forwards, we're now... You know, reopened. We we ran a bunch of weeks in September and October when we would have otherwise been shut, but the border was open. And we just said to anyone that had not been able to come down, look, we're here, we're open. If you can get here, we'll run, run weeks for you. And a lot of people were, were able to come down. Sadly, many weren't. Um, when it got to the beginning of November, we then already had people booked in. So we weren't able to continue doing that. And, um, and, and since we've been open... Uh, sort of as normal, but, you know, with, of, of course, all of us, our COVID safety protocols in place, um, we've been full and it's been really fantastic. And I was really concerned that um, with mask wearing and social distancing, some level of connection that, that our guests um, have with each other and with the team during their week at Surf Simply, uh, which I think is an emergent property of of the way that the space is designed and also just having gone through quite a physically demanding and sometimes emotionally um, quite tiring experience of of pushing yourself out in the surf and trying to get better. And I think that can sort of hack the process of of becoming friends and people do tend to get very close. And I, I was worried that something would be taken away from that with all of the safety protocols we had in place. And so it was such an enormous relief to get 
positive feedback from everyone and realised that that wasn't the case. We're quite lucky because the resort itself, you know, well, for one thing, of course, it's in Costa Rica, so everything's open air and all the way through the year we've got really pleasant outdoor temperatures. So we don't really have any closed indoor spaces which our guests and staff have to share. Um, there's, a, there's a couple, but we've sort of mitigated for them pretty well. Um, you know, and then we, we, we um, ask all of our guests to have a PCR test before they uh, arrive at Surf Simply, which originally Costa Rica was asking people to do before they came into the country. Um, but they stopped doing that. But, but we still ask our guests to do that. And again, this was all new territory and we weren't sure whether we should ask this of, of our guests. But the, the feedback on that has been overwhelmingly positive as well. And then when our guests arrive, whenever they're in a communal outdoor space, uh, they have to wear a mask. Uh, but if you sort of settle down in your own space, doing your own thing, and you're outdoors and more than two metres away from anyone else, then it's fine to take your mask off and kind of read your book or, or do whatever you're doing or chat or look at your phone. Um, you know, we don't have everyone bunched around our big, cosy, nice round table. Uh, that was always one of my favourite bits of the Surf Simply experience. Now we have everyone... Um, tell us their bubbles before they arrive and then arrange all the seating for all the meals according to the bubbles that people have specified before they come. And of course, sometimes during the week, people want to change bubbles. So we've had to develop a system for making sure that that doesn't just happen in a fluid way, but it's it's something that we know specifically from every guest. And then we rearrange the logistics of, of the layout, both when we eat out and at the resort, so that all of those bubbles are respected all the time. And um, I mean, it's it's been a lot to think about, but I think we've got it pretty right. And the feedback's been really great. Um, we had our first cases in Nosara here in December, which was which was it was kind of weird because COVID had been in the front of all of our minds all year. And, it you know, is the, the front of every conversation. Um, but we hadn't actually had anyone test positive here. So it had always felt like something on the news that's happening in other parts of the world to other people. And it was only in December that, that a few people started testing positive. And, and thankfully, even now, it still is very few. But then we got someone test positive, one of the staff at Surf Simply. Um, and a little while later, one of the other staff members tested positive. So that was two since we've been opened uh, in total. Uh, and they were they were apart and they... Uh, we 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 think that they they contracted it you know elsewhere out of surf simply because they had exposure elsewhere, and what was really reassuring about that was that we had sort of designed our safety protocols in two ways. One was to minimise the likelihood that anyone would come into work or or come as a guest and had COVID, um, and the other one was if someone arrived and they were positive, that there would be no mechanism by which it could spread to any of the rest of the team and staff. And so, you know, when we had uh, first one and then another person uh, test positive and realised that they'd been in the, in the resort environment with it, but had not given it to anyone else, because, you know, we then got everyone around them tested as well, that was really reassuring and, and it made me feel like we were doing a really good job. Um, and it's been nice to have some medical professionals, epidemiologists and, and ER doctors and whatnot come and stay and, you know, tell us we're doing everything right as well. So that feels pretty good. The part that's been really difficult is actually, and I'm sure this is true for business owners all over the world, but, you know, speaking with the whole team and, and thankfully everyone's really on board with this, but speaking with the whole team and, and having conversations about what people can and can't do in their private lives when they're away from work or over the Christmas break as we've just had 
um, you know, it, it, as a business owner, I never imagined that I would be reaching into people's personal lives and saying, look, you know, you really can't do this and you can't do that. Uh, and I think the fact that Surf Simply is such a tight family of, of you know, there's like th- around 30 of us uh, and everyone is so invested in this project of Surf Simply together that, you know, everyone is really on board with trying to keep each other safe and, and protect this this business that we all love uh, and this life that we have. Um, but, I mean, I, I can't imagine how that must work and, and feel when you're you're trying to make that same thing happen in you know businesses of hundreds or thousands of people so you know that that's been a challenge but i I, you know i'm very grateful to the whole whole of the team for being for being on the same page and and wanting to keep each other safe so you know now going forwards uh i don't think we're going to have any more shutdowns that there's been a lot of pressure from the uh tourist industry here in Costa Rica not to close the border again so I think that's very unlikely we'll have to wait and see of course what the new administration is going to do in the states in terms of what travel they allow or don't allow there so that's kind of a bit of an unknown Um, but I think from our point of view we're going to keep going with the safety protocols that we have in this new modified sort of post-covid version of the surf simply week which which you know everyone seems to really enjoy and We've had, well, actually, what's really nice is is having guests who stayed post COVID and have now rebooked to come again. Uh, we've got a couple of people this week who actually came back in November and then and then picked up cancelled spots this week. So that felt really good. Um, but you know, going forwards, there is going to be people that will test positive. That's just going to happen, um, and obviously, we want them to be to have a, a swift recover, recovery. But uh, you know, if if we can have like you know one member of staff down or or one guest who we we have to then take away into our isolation apartment that we have just off property from the resort, and and no one else ever gets it, only those few isolated um, single digit kind of cases, um, then I think that we will have got through this really well. Um, it was really reassuring as well to see that the Costa Rican government had already bought up three million doses of the Pfizer vaccine and is now uh, of the Pfizer vaccine, and is now distributing them around the country. It, it does feel like the the end of this is in sight, and we're really over the hardest part. But um, you know, obviously, our thoughts go out to everyone else in the world who's who's struggling through a winter with this, and um, and we wish everyone all the best. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So I'm here today with Professor Samuel Perkis, head of marine geosciences at Miami University and fairly exhausted surfer after the session that we just had out the front here at Surf Simply. Welcome to the show, Sam. Well, Rui, it's a great pleasure. And yeah, I am very tired. That was my longest session. (laughs) I've taken a beating. (laughs) That was a pretty good one to finish on. Um, So, uh, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that we've talked about over the last week or so, and I just thought it'd be really cool to share some of it with our listeners. So I'd like to revisit a couple of conversations that we had. But also first, could you just tell everyone a little bit about you know, who you are, what you do, and particularly the, the trip that you were on recently? Yes, I'm a uh, professor at the University of Miami, and I work on the interface of marine biology and geology. And um, that seems like strange bedfellows, but all of Earth's history is played out in the oceans, really. So I think of uh, geology as just marine biology through time. So I look at the, uh, well, more often than not now, the problems the oceans are facing and try to come up with solutions on how we can 
get past the uh, often quite desperate situation. But I tend to take a long-term view. I mean, not just hundreds of years, but I work, you know, looking back on how the earth has performed over tens of thousands or millions or even tens or hundreds of millions of years to try to bring that perspective to the problem. Because one thing's for sure, the problems we're facing with the, uh, the Earth and the changing climate at the moment is nothing new. I mean, climate is always changing and we've had many crises in the past and there's a lot we can learn from the past that we can present and maybe use to guide our solutions. So I, I guess the big difference this time around is that when we've had all of those things happen in the past, there hasn't been 21st century humanity trying to muddle through it business as usual. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, but there's not to say that there hasn't been major calamities in the past, like which sort of um, outweigh what we're seeing today. I mean, just imagine if we came back to the Earth 65 million years ago when a comet hit the planet. And of course, it's famous for wiping out the dinosaurs. But I mean, these sort of cataclysmic events do happen. And uh, whether humanity will leave a signature like something like that, I think is still open to debate. But one thing's for sure, you know, humanity's causing the Earth a lot of problems and the oceans in particular. So, uh, you know, one thing that I always hear people say, which I guess is kind of a cliche, but might be worth repeating, is uh, that people often talk about saving the planet or saving the environment. Um, but the planet's going to be just fine. Like it'll just carry on going. I guess it's it's us that really need to like look after ourselves and, and, and looking after the environment for us to carry on living in it. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely for sure. I mean, the planet has been through so much in the past, but um, when we have these great mass extinction events and we've had five so far and arguably we're having the sixth at the moment, uh, you see a huge decline in many species on the planet and it's quite predictable which are going to suffer the worst and those which are most dependable, you know, least adaptable to uh, the changing situation are going to suffer disproportionately. And certainly humans are in that latter grouping. So, yes, we, we face a real crisis, no doubt about it. So, so when we're looking at the ocean, you know, just thinking about that kind of problem of despeciation, um, you know, that's something that you're pretty familiar with. And, and you were giving me some facts about what you can expect to eat when you order in restaurants that kind of blew my mind a little bit. So, I don't know, the 10,000 mile up view, like what are, we, what, are we, what are we concerned about primarily in the oceans? What's the bad news? Hopefully, what's the good news? Um, yeah, could you talk about that a little bit? So, the problems with the oceans, I suppose, you can split into two different baskets of problems. And there are those which are acting globally. It doesn't really matter where you are in the ocean. You're going to face the same pressures. And that's all to do with global warming, uh, warming of the oceans in particular, and then sort of leading on behind that is the what we call ocean acidification. It's not really actually becoming more acidic, the seawater, it's becoming less alkaline, but it's doing so very quickly. And that's going to have a whole plurophora of impacts. Um, uh, you know, I work personally on coral reefs. And, you know, the situation is particularly dire for them. But, you, you know, I don't think we really understand acidification in full, but it could impact full uh, food webs globally. And the second basket of uh, pressures are local in nature, and they come in terms of coastal development, overfishing, dis dis destructive fishing, and so on and so forth, where, you know, the, the amplitude of those pressures depends on where you are in the earth. But when we talk about global uh, despeciation of the oceans, I mean, you immediately start to think about overfishing. And this has always been recognised as a problem. But recent advances in technology 
have really started to allow us to understand how big a problem it is. And recent estimates uh, show that perhaps 50% of the fish which are caught in the ocean are caught illegally, um, or um, at least sort of very close to being illegal, because the, the law gets very grey in certain areas. So, so do you mean that they're being caught by legal fishing boats going into other countries' waters, or by folk boats that aren't supposed to be fishing, or boats that are the, catching the wrong kind of fish? Well, both. Well, well, all of the above, really. So the way that we understand what fish are uh, caught is by monitoring fishing boats. And there's, you know, there's a lot electronic transponders that fishing boats carry so we can see where they are operating. And the second thing we do is that we, uh, you know, scrutinize their landings and understand exactly what's being caught and that they're staying within certain quotas, which are set uh, internationally. And it's one of the few, um, you know, international successes, I suppose, where multiple countries are coming to set quotas uh, based on the best understanding of the fish stocks. But what we see now um, is that there's, uh, it's called dark fishing or dark fleets. And these are ships which are um, operating without any recourse to the law. I mean, they don't have their transponders switched on. And in the past, we, they, we were completely oblivious to this huge fleet uh, of, uh, of fishing vessels. But now recent technologies using satellites where we can use uh, different types of satellites, in particular in the microwave spectrum, I mean, far uh, beyond what the eyes can see, uh, we now know that there's many vessels operating which shouldn't be out there, and they're switching off their transponders and going dark, as it were, and they're catching a huge number of fish. But we're also starting to recognise that fish fishers which have permits to work are often exceeding their quotas, maybe offloading the catch at sea to motherships, which themselves are dark. And at that, uh, that point, they are licensed to operate, but they're uh, operating well, uh, far beyond the scope of their license. And that's how you get to this staggering number that 50% of the fish which might be caught in any given year are illegally caught. That's, that's really shocking. And I mean, so when illegal types of fish are being caught or rather you know a, a certain type of fish that's being caught well beyond what, what how much of it is allowed to be caught and then it's being served up in restaurants you were sort of mentioning before that a shockingly high percentage of food that you might order in a restaurant isn't the fish that it might say on the menu and is, is that their way of sort of getting around this or what yeah i mean i think it, fish because there's so many um uh, there's such a complex web of businesses that take the fish from the fishing hook which caught it to your plate in the restaurant. It's very difficult to trace whether the fish you're eating is indeed the fish, uh, is fished legally or illegally. I mean, they're starting to come up with ways of tracking this, actually using sort of um, the same sort of uh, um, uh, blockchain technology that's used for Bitcoin, actually, is one idea. But it's very hard to trace at the moment. And then also, I used to, in a previous institute, institute I worked at, um, we had a group that were doing genetic tests of the fish in restaurants. And uh, more often than not, I mean, way more often than not, uh, the fish isn't actually the fish you order. That's, I mean, uh, certainly if it's a, a sort of a white fish steak or so, it nearly never is. If you can recognize the shape of the fish, then you have a good chance. But um, there, there's, uh, you know, um, often, more often than not, it's not the fish you're ordering at all. That is, that's quite mind-blowing. So, yes. I mean, so I, like, as you know, I, I tr well, we all try to be a, a slightly eth more ethical version of ourselves each year. And like, you know, a few years ago, I, I stopped eating meat, but I still eat fish. Now there's 
no ethical justification for me having drawn that totally arbitrary line other than I figure it's a bit better than just eating lots of meat as well. Um, is, what, what do the ethics look like around eating fish? I mean, should we just, should we really not be eating fish? Is, is there better, worse kinds of fish to eat? Should, should we be, you know, not ordering certain things in restaurants or, or trying to encourage other things or certain types of fishing? Well, I, I, I think it's, it's a case of due diligence. I mean, certainly eating less meat is good. I mean, I wouldn't... Um say that's a bad thing to anyone because you know meat is such a carbon dioxide heavy commodity that you're certainly doing well moving away from meat whether replacing what you would be eating in meat with fish is a very murky question i'm afraid because of this problem i mean there's certain fisheries which are considered uh, sustainable i mean th and this is beyond my expertise but there's certainly guides to this I mean, it used to be the sort of species which uh, live fast and die young and reproduce very quickly. Squid mm -hmm. was a, a good example of that. But now it seems it's being uh, gratuitously overfished by um, these dark fleets, which I was talking about uh, before. There's some cases I, uh, there, that the uh, swordfish fishery on the East Coast, certainly locally, in some cases can be somewhat sustainable and, um, and so on and so forth. The problem is... And I'll come back to this, this question of the dark fleets, that when we're setting fishing quotas, you know, they are predicated on the fish which are being caught and reported. And now discovering that 50% more fish might be being caught, our whole understanding of what fisheries are sustainable and where quotas should be set is sort of blown out the water. So, um, I mean, I think it's very difficult unless you really have due diligence to say that you're eating seafood in a sustainable manner. Yeah, yeah. We did an episode where we sort of tried to do a, a look at what we as individuals can do for to fight climate change. You yeah. Know? And we sort of reached the conclusion, and I'd be interested to know your comments on this and then bringing it back around to the oceans specifically, that there, there really isn't actually that much apart from voting politicians into power who can action change at a national or international level. Um, I remember that there was a, this whole sort of push back in that, I think it was that the 80s, where the onus was put onto the individual to reuse, recycle, you know, and, and it actually, it sounded good, but it really just took the onus away from governments to, to do what needed to be done at sort of that, at the legislative level. Um, you know, I mean, is, is there anything that we can do at, at a personal level or, or really do, is it the same, same is true with the oceans? If we want to look after them, we really need to be like, you know, voting in politicians and, and demanding that our representatives are, uh, taking action? Yeah, well, um, I suppose it comes back to that idea that I spoke about before of local versus global pressures. Like the, the global pressure on the planet in general and the oceans in particular is climate change. And certainly there's things you can do which help, like you said, eating less meat, uh, being less uh, energy intensive in your life, be that by driving electric cars, switching off your lights at home. I mean, anything you can do uh, to reduce your carbon footprint, you should be doing. And there's no doubt about that. And that can go a, a certain way to, to moving the needle. In terms of reversing this trajectory that we're on, where it looks you know, fairly certain now that we're going to uh, not meet uh, the... Um, the Paris Agreement, for example. I mean, yeah, to, to turn that trajectory around, you really need to be working at the international level and have a wholesale uh, move into renewable energies. And 
up, you know, I've been fairly sceptical, I'll admit it, about this uh, up to about five years ago. But now there's been such a dramatic uh, reduction in the cost of renewable energies that they really are competitive with fossil fuels on many levels if and only if you remove the uh, financial subsidies from, from fossil fuels. And that's something which is a political problem. Uh, you know, I think as you alluded to, and for that you have to vote in governments which are going to tackle that head on. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. So I, I, I just want to circle right back round to, to something I wanted to ask you about at the start of the conversation. Um, the, the, you, you just came back from a six or eight week uh, research yeah. trip? Yeah, I was, uh, I was more than six weeks offshore, working offshore in the Red Sea with an incredible uh, group, uh, Ocean X. And uh, uh, in Saudi Arabian waters there, and uh, I mean, it's very special for me because typically I work in the shallow ocean uh, down to, I don't know, maybe 100 meters depth or something like this. But on this incredible vessel, the Ocean Explorer, we were using uh, submersibles and also robot submarines and diving down to, um, to, to about 1,000 meters in the manned submersibles and more than 2,500 meters using the robot vehicles and th that was an incredible privilege to see that part of the ocean that I have learned a lot about and you know collected samples from but never seen with my own eyes and I suppose what really struck me on a conservation level was that once you get down to those depths I mean say we're cruising along the seafloor eight nine hundred meters depth just the amount of trash which is down there really and uh, you know everywhere you're looking, there, there's, you know, there's plastic and, um, you know, just the signature of humans. And I was, you know, um, wrongly under the impression that once you get down into the deep ocean, that you can sort of be free of that human influence unless you start to look at the molecular level uh, or the chemistry of the water. Of course, you're going to pick it up. But um, no, it's not the case. And you really, you can really see that human influence and yeah, it's saddening. It really is saddening to see it, actually. Uh, what was the main? Uh, what was the main area of your area of research on that trip? Well, what were you looking at? my main area of research was coral reefs, uh, which is um, but looking more at the sort of long term history of reef building in the Red Sea, going back thousands, or perhaps into the millions of years. But I was working with a diverse group of scientists, people looking at birds and sharks. Uh, uh, fish species, and so on and so forth. So it was this really great experience to work with all these different disciplines and to understand how our different scientific threads could be woven together to understand this ecosystem uh, in more depth. And that's why it was incredible to be working with Ocean X and have this incredible vessel, because it just allowed all of the scientists you know, to work so effectively, just with incredible assets on the vessel. But I, I'll tell you, it adds a lot of pressure. I mean, you have this, uh, you have the, all of these incredible things. There's a helicopter on the front of the ship you can use for spotting uh, whale sharks or turtles and things and counting them. You've got the submersibles and the robot submarines, but you really feel that you have to be using that equipment, you know, to the <laughs> yeah. maximum because it's such a wasted opportunity if you're not. And, uh, that applies a sort of like pressure uh, to the science. And, and that's when it gets really interesting because everyone's sort of fizzing and really, you know, trying to make the most of this perhaps once in a lifetime opportunity. So, you know, I came back really uh, invigorated about my science and I needed it, to be oh, honest. That's very cool. It's yeah. pretty cool watching you, watching how excited you get even talking about it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I've known you for about 20, 15 or 20 years. 
And uh, you have resisted social media more than anyone I know, I think. To your credit, as a turned <laughs> yeah. But on, your, on the trip, you became a TikTok star. Oh, yes. Well, you know. <laughs> it's a... Sorry, I, was just, I had to bring it up. Yeah, it's, ne- it's never too late, is it? Um, yeah, that was a you know, surprising rise to stardom, 15,000 views <laughs> on TikTok. Not that I want to sort of uh, number drop on it. But um, uh, yeah, I have resisted social media, but it was fun, actually. <laughs> it was fun. I had someone who was, they have a very capable uh, social media person with Ocean X, and she was doing an amazing job. So I'm sure um, it was down to more her skills than my own. But, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I will, you know, get into TikTok. You know, I was just, you know, still hanging on to my MySpace account, but maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe I'll move over. <laughs> Sam, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. It's been a great pleasure. And, you know, I'm a longtime uh, supporter of Surf Simply and uh, have been resisting surfing a little bit like social media. But I will say, uh, I think I might have caught the bug uh, on this latest trip. And, um, you know, I'm very grateful for all the tips you've been giving me. And I, I, maybe I've even got a little bit of surfing in me yet. <laughs> Is there anywhere that you'd like to point listeners to on the web where they can learn more about what you do or, or, uh, or just anything that you'd like them to look at particularly? Well, um, I think you could certainly look me up or even contact me at the University of Miami, uh, Sam Perkis. You can, you can just Google me. I'd say if you want to get your shoulder behind something which can really make a difference, and I, I've spent a long time looking at the ocean now, and um, it's been pretty dismal experience, at least in the last 15 years or so. I mean, you can lose hope if you're not careful. But one thing, uh, if I see a ray of hope, it's that what you can do when you start to protect really large parts of the ocean. And I'm not talking hundreds of square kilometers or thousands. I'm talking millions of square kilometers. And we call this uh, marine protected areas. And I think from my personal perspective, the successes I've seen, the conservation successes have most commonly been linked to these really large marine protected areas, of which there's a number now, uh, more than 10 or so, which are more than a million square kilometers in area. And anything you can do to get your shoulder behind those sort of enterprises, I think that's how we have a meaningful chance of, of moving the needle, at least when it comes to ocean conservation. So, you know, I certainly point listeners um, uh, towards you know, anything they can do to support marine protected areas. And the really big ones are the ones which are making a difference. And, and we'll put links to those in the show notes. For sure, um, that would be great. Is yes. there any, any, any names that they should Google? Well, I, I, I think, um, I mean, there's um, Oceans 5 would be a good place to start. The one that I've been very passionate about is the Chagos Marine Protected Area in the Central Indian Ocean. But if you look at really uh, large marine protected areas uh, on the internet, there's going to be a number that come up and a number of ways that you can get involved. And then it's a case of picking a part of the world. I mean, not all of these are in the tropical ocean where I'm interested in working. They span all sorts of areas. And, you know, you've just got to find a cause that you are passionate about, maybe it's close to somewhere you're living, and then really get behind that because declaring parts of the ocean protected, you know, we can do the science as scientists, um, but that's really, it's a political problem, isn't it? But especially these really big ones, which are multinational in scope. So, you know, anything that can be done to, to also induce political will uh, to uh, protect large swaths of the ocean, you know, go out and get amongst it because that's the, the way we're going to change things. Professor Sam Perkis, thank you very much. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you.
for our next interview, we're actually going to go back in time to before COVID happened uh, in an innocent pre-COVID world. And I was lucky enough to chat with John Roseman, one of the owners of Tavarua, and, uh, and also the guy who is on the biggest and best waves pretty much every time they have a huge 30-foot-plus swell at Cloudbreak. Um, really interesting guy. Uh, I spoke with him actually sitting on the beach in, at, right in front of restaurants on Tavarua Island. So you'll have to forgive the sound quality not being amazing, but the uh, background noise you can hear, uh, the waves breaking on the beach and the uh, wildlife buzzing around in the trees. So uh, hopefully what you lack in sound quality will be made up for in uh, atmospherics. I hope you enjoy the interview. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks for joining us. Wow, thanks for having me. So this is my second week at Tavaru. I stayed here a few years ago and your team here have just been absolutely amazing. I, you must be so proud of, the, of all of the staff. I am. I mean, really the, the staff's what makes Tavaru so special. The waves and everything are great, but but our staff, the Fijian staff, are just wonderful. So uh, I've been, you know, reading up a bit about the history of the island, and of course now is your 35-year celebration of the of the of the business. But as I understand it, and I don't know any of these names other than just in the context of the history of Tavarua, so perhaps you could tell me more about them. But my my understanding is that John Ritter <laughs> first surfed Cloudbreak in '78, and then um, William Finnegan, who we've had on the show before, sort of talked about his time staying here on, on Tavarua Island and I think he just served restaurants though um, and then the the business opened in the early 80s and you joined in the early 90s I wonder if you could just sort of give us a bit of a, a more fleshed out narrative of the history of, of Tavarua. Kind of came on board in, in the late 80s as a guest I came down here just for one week and just never left um, but at that point Dave Clark and his partner Scott Funk were running it and uh, it was a little more of the Wild West days. Um, there was only 12 berets and like one central bathroom and you know, we'd all use shower bags to take showers, um, lay them out in the sun to heat up like five gallon bags. Um, but it was classic, it was very sleepy in Fiji in those days and especially sleepy out here kind of on the outer islands. The evolution of what, where we're sitting at now, which is this beautiful world-class resort, um, has just been sort of incremental improvements. But I imagine, you know, just from setting up Surf Simile in Costa Rica, I know how many logistical problems that we've had uh, <coughs> along the way. I can't even imagine trying to do something like this on an island with no fresh water, you know, a significant boat ride away from the mainland. And even the mainland itself is is not a short distance away from, from many of the major continents or, or kind of production hubs. So what have been some of the big challenges in, in make it in creating what, where we are now. Well, especially in the early days, I mean, everything, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, logistically, uh, it was challenging. And basically, this whole entire resort was built by hand. And in those early days, um, we only had like, three or four boats. Um, we did most of the building with uh, one of our boats called Longboat. It was 28 feet long and relatively narrow. and. Um, you know, piled timber loads on that, and we must have done hundreds of loads back and forth in all sorts of weather conditions. Then using, you know, giant, you know, locals to offload all this stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, we just kind of built one structure at a time. You know, we bring out bags and bags of concrete, and we bring, you know, tons of, you know, big beams, and of course, two by fours, and just all the different materials and nails and the whole thing, and just literally by hand, slowly, you know, built what you see today. And of course, 
Um, you know, the structures are a little more advanced and evolved, and we do use barges now and everything. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a, an interesting uh, evolution, a lot of fun, but a lot of hard work too. How big is your team of, of local Fijians who are working here, here at Tavaroa, more or less? I mean, now our staff is, you know, approximately 90. 95 and on, on any given day you know we probably have 50 or 60 staff working and a team of carpenters and everything but in those days you know we probably only had about 20 staff and literally you know and then a lot of um, guys would come out for the day kind of I guess what you'd call casual labor from the villages we, we did everything we we could in those days to employ you know the surrounding communities was there a community on Tavaro before uh, you guys were here or they're from the they're from the village near the, the the beach, Rendezvous Beach, where we came over from mainland Fiji. Yeah, there was, no, there was nothing on Tavara before. I mean, I think with the Fijians, you know, we would set up like small um, thatched, uh, you know, shade areas or something when they'd come out and fish for the day, but there was, there was nothing here, no village or anything. So the closest village to Tavara uh, is Nambila village and their sister village next to that is Momi village. So yeah, logistically, we'd bring everything from from those villages, you know, including the workers. I forget his name actually, but I was chatting with one of the older guys on your team here working in a restaurant, and he was talking about how, you know, he's just become a grandfather, and uh, his son is working over on the Motu, and he's really excited to have his son come and join the Tavarua team, and uh, I think he said his wife works here as well, or, or is his sister, but there was a such a strong sense that, you know, they were so proud to be part of the Tavarua Island uh, team and uh, I just thought that was really cool that you guys have built that. Yeah and I'm pretty sure you're referring to Rwanga. Yes, yeah. His wife uh, is named Liviana. She's we call kind of the head Marama you know female uh, kind of figurehead who is just in charge of you know everything um, staff wise and commands the respect of the staff um, but yeah they're both our original employees. In fact Liviana I think literally is our oldest um, employee now she's been working here pretty much all of those 35 years that's and, very cool yeah and so you know Ron was referring to his, his grandson or I'm sorry that would be his son working over on the Motu now he's Sameli and I mean we're solidly into our second generation of staff and I think that's one of the most beautiful things here is that it really it's a family affair so it makes it so special staff and the guests we're in our second generation of guests coming here too Almost everyone that I meet now has come here like three, four, five, six times. Everyone seems to, it just seems to be yeah. like an annual thing, you know, it's very cool. Yeah, and their kids are taking over the groups and, you know, it's, I mean, that's the secret to this whole thing. It's just, it's a beautiful experience and you know, the staff, the relationship with the guests, that the guests have with the staff and then you keep that going multi, multi-generations, it's, it's special. It's something that can't be duplicated. Most of our listeners mm-hmm. will be familiar with Tavarua because, of course, the, the contest that's here and, and the thousands of surf videos that have been shot here but everyone always knows about cloud break but of course there's all of these other waves which make it such a great place for kids and families we're at swimming pools yesterday which or the day before which was just a whole bunch of fun and you know kind of these waist high um turquoise water over this beautiful coral reef um but you know the main event is of course cloud break and you've surfed pretty much every giant swell here i mean every time we see footage of you know, I don't even know how you would call it 30, 40 foot cloud break. There's always yeah. you in the middle of it all. Could you, could you tell us about just some of your like, fondest <coughs> memories of some of those big swells, if there's any that, that really stand out? I mean, you know, it's, I've been really, really fortunate to, to be down here for, for so many of those. And I mean, they're all like special and unique, I guess, in, in their own way. All pretty scary, but at the same time, like the, the best, you know, 
adrenaline rush you could ever, ever have. And I mean, what makes Cloudbreak so incredible when it has that size is it can be really, really clean. It's not all, you know, warped out with like weird boils coming up the face or too shallow or anything. Um, Cloudbreak's unique because literally the, the wave has the same shape when it's like two feet, 20 feet, 30 feet. It just gets thicker and heavier, but it's just, it's like impossible to, to turn down when it looks like that. It just, it looks so beautiful. You're just like, oh my God, okay, well, I just want to take a shot at it. Do, do you remember the first time that you, um, you know, cause I always was always aware of Cloudbreak <laughs> as being this sort of epic, you know, 10 to 12 foot kind of wave. And, and I don't remember exactly when it was that I first saw footage of it at that XXL level where it was like, oh, okay, this is like a big wave spot. Um, do you remember the first time that you had that realization yourself and, and were out surfing it when you realized it could get, you know, giant? Actually, you know, great question. So the first time I actually saw it do that, um, I didn't surf it on this particular day. It was in 1989 in March. Um, and uh, my partner and original founder, Dave Clark, and I were surfing restaurants. And restaurants was like solid eight to 10 foot backs. It was just perfect. It had like this powder puff offshore on it. A little bit of an overcast day and kind of ominous, but I mean, the waves were just insane. And I remember coming in from restaurants and I went over to the lookout tower just to see what Clyde was doing. And it just, Clyde all I could see was just these giant, giant holes. Like it was the most amazing thing I've ever, ever seen. But just the scale and proportion were just like, you know, I, I've just never seen anything like it. It was just so far beyond anything to, that I could even imagine. Um, unfortunately, in those days, you know, wave runners weren't around, so we didn't have the ability to tow it, and it just looked impossible to paddle. Like, I mean, now, you know, with skis and safety, uh, and everything else, and, and vests, you know, it, it's doable, because if you eat it, you, you're gonna mitigate your risk of a little bit of drowning. But in those days, it was like, well, okay. So yeah, it was the first time I saw it like that. And then um, we did try to paddle a few times, like a couple of years later, on different types of swells and really, really scary experience. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I was out there on Saturday when, I don't know, they were sort of calling the sets around 10 feet, eight to 10 feet, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that was the edge of my comfort <coughs> zone, you know? And then Alex Gray, one of your boatmen mm -hmm. here, also, also a famous big wave surfer, you know, was out there with us and, and I was, I'm here with my partner Marine and I was like, oh, you should see some of Alex Gray's waves. We Googled him and, you know, we're watching him surfing that massive wave at Chopu in 2011. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then looking at some of the photos that you've had out here, I, you know, I can't even imagine. It's just this kind of whole extra level. And, and it really brought it home to me being out here at that size on Saturday and being like, oh, this is just, this is just playtime for these guys. This is like nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, Saturday had some, some good waves. I mean, some, you know, it was challenging. It was all over. I mean, this, I guess, I mean, no matter what the swell, you know, when it gets bigger, like eight feet and it starts hitting the ledge and starts hitting the outer ledge, it's never easy. It's always shifting around. You're, you're always going to take a bunch on the head for every good one. It's just, Clabric just demands like a price to be paid every time you get a perfect wave. And it's always humbling. Like, I don't think you could ever have Clabric completely figured out. It just has a mind. <laughs> she has, I call her a woman sometimes. She has a mind of her own. And sometimes she can get really, really upset. And sometimes she can be mellow, but and sometimes she can do it all on the same day. It's, it was interesting for me, I, I haven't surfed a lot of waves like this, but where you sort of take off and it's kind of not that big and kind of mellow, and then you mm -hmm. start going down and then that end section really stands up. Um, when you see those incredible photos of guys just getting these huge cavernous barrels, that's, that's that sort of end section of the reef, is it, that you see those on generally? Yeah, usually. So what happens is, you know, cloud break, you know, the swell comes in and it actually bends. So that what the first part you're talking about, 
is kind of where you take off. It's like there's almost like a little crease where the way it just kind of bends and corners just for a second. It's pretty subtle just with the shape of the reef, but technically it'll let you in and then it just grows. You, you know, it's the most amazing thing. So, you know, um, I forgot I was telling this to recently, but we're really lucky that we don't watch collaborate from the scaffolding or from the reef looking out. Because if you did, you'd realize, you know, what you're saying, how much it grows and how thick it is, how fast it is. When you're looking at it from the channel, it actually, for some reason, makes the waves look a tiny bit smaller and makes everything look makeable when you're looking into it, right? I mean, I, I think it'd be terrifying to have to, like, stare, you know, straight out at it on a, on a big, giant swell. It would probably, <laughs> probably make you really not want to go out. <laughs> so... Um, another thing I'd like to ask you about uh, that has really impressed me is we've had quite a few guys on the show before talking about climate change, which mm -hmm. as far as <coughs> I'm, I'm concerned, it's one of those problems where if we were all just worrying about it all day, every day, that still wouldn't be in an appropriate amount of time to be giving it. Um, and of course, one of the big problems is uh, as, the, as the temperature rises, we have this acidification in the water and so just massive areas of coral reef are dying all over the place. Um, this reef out here is absolutely right in front of the island, like literally 100 meters or less off, off the restaurant where we're sitting now. It's one of the most impressive reefs I've ever seen. Um, you guys have taken fabulous care of it, uh, and also you're doing your, your clam, giant clam regeneration mm -hmm. project. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about you know, what you've done there to sort of look after that reef and, and help it regenerate. Sure. Well, you know, I think you know, there's two things going on. Um, one is, you know, we have worked, we are currently working with fisheries on this giant clam restoration project. Um, a lot of beautiful species of giant clam are, are on the verge of extinction. Unfortunately, you know, several years ago, a lot of giant clam were being exported for sale in different markets overseas and everything um, to the point of depletion. So we've worked with fisheries where you know, we have these big giant tanks on the island itself to nurse little babies uh, to the point where we can put, put them out in the reef in cages and everything and eventually release them completely into the wild. Uh, we're into, I think, our third or fourth year doing this now. And so now on the reef, you, you know, you see these beautiful species that are larger now. In fact, some of the species have actually flown directly in from these outer islands. And you're talking like four or 500 pound clams. So that definitely enhances the reef because you end up with a lot of little fish around it um, and the bigger fish like to follow the little fish and it, and it kind of self-propagates. Um, but the other thing that we've done with the reef is created what's called a tombu or no fishing zone. So, and it's tricky because, you know, a lot of the local communities depend on the reefs, uh, well, for fishing, but um, expressly for these big village functions of which there's a lot, you know, uh, just the just the way that, you know, the, the communal living and, and just these giant, giant um, functions in the village where they invite all these other surrounding communities and everyone kind of shares in, you know, the food and everything else. So you have to provide all this. Um, so they, you know, traditionally come out to the reefs and they net fish and fish they catch in the nets, of course, are kind of smaller varieties and they catch everything, right? So it's, it's your parafish. Um, parafish are important, right? Because, you know, they, they kind of eat chunks of reef and things, but they expel sand. And that's how all these islands like Tavara and Emotu were made, is basically parrotfish excrement. I had no idea. That's yeah. fascinating. So, you know, if you deplete the population of parrotfish with net fishing and everything, you know, you're actually going to shrink these islands. Um, so, like creating like a no fishing zone at Tambu, it's amazing how quickly fish populations have come back. And so, I actually went diving yesterday uh, just out 
you know, around the clams and I went a little further out. And it was, I mean, the reef was stunning. Um, I jumped into, I don't know, a school of about three or 400 barracuda, smaller ones. And then there was two little baby sharks, a sea turtle. I mean, it literally looked like a, if you jumped into a sea and finding Nemo or something, it, it was incredible. So I think it's a combination, the clam project, the no fishing, and then just also just education in general. Uh, you know, uh, for our guests, for our staff, you know, for the local communities. That this is the future. The reef is, is your future and everything's got to be done sustainably for tourism, for, for their own sake, everything. And then lastly, the thing I'll mention on this, you know, when you have a no fishing area, what happens is that area becomes so dense with just all this life propagating, there's actually a spillover effect into surrounding reefs that don't have a, a no fishing place on them ban. And so all of a sudden those surrounding reefs get even better for fishing than they've ever been. And so, you know, the locals can still very adequately, you know, sustain themselves and have fish while preserving the reefs at the same time. Uh, it was really interesting this week. We, we had a, a group from the World Bank come out in conjunction uh, with fisheries uh, for some meetings out here. Um, they were tasked by the Fiji government to quantify the effects of the marine protected area on the surrounding communities. and. You know, the, I was helping them put together um, a survey of questions um, for hotels and, and just also, you know, for tourists in general on you know, how important uh, quality and health of the surrounding reefs are to them on their vacations and, of course, with hotels and everything on their clients. Um, and you know, it's it's the most important thing ever to have a healthy reef, and, and it's um, you can definitely make a case for you know hotels to take responsibility for, for you know, the care and, and, and uh, everything um, for the surrounding reefs of which they're a part of. And so the government's introduced uh, marine protected areas into Fiji, and I think they're going to continue to do so. Um, and I think it's really, really advantageous for the private sector to get more involved with that and take the burden off government protecting these reefs and protect it themselves. Yeah. And for their locals, for, for you know, for, for tourists and just the health of the whole environment of the country. And, you, I mean, just out of interest, when you're... So, where, where we have Surf Simply down in Costa Rica, and um, my sister actually lives in Miami, and so she and I talk about... And she works in the area of climate science as well, and, um, you know, we're always talking about, well, what's everything going to look like in 40 years, you know? And traditionally, when you, you know, buy a house and you pay off a mortgage or start up a business and you borrow a load of money and you have your, like you know, period of time where you're paying things back and then you have your, you know, your profitable time and then your retirement, hopefully, at the end. Um, and, you know, and she and I are both like, well, we don't know if what our properties are going to be worth in 40 years. You know, her in Miami and me right on the beach in Costa Rica. Um, and I'm just curious, and, and, you know, we don't have to put this in. I'm just sure. I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Like, you know, when you're looking at this whole area with, with sea level rises, is that something that you guys are thinking about and talking about or... or is the magnitude of that problem so unknowable that it's not really worth kind of trying to mitigate for it now? Um, just in terms of the business and the logistics of it, I mean, you, I, I don't know how in danger the, the islands in Fiji are with sea level rises and, and what forecasters are saying might be the, the, the first real effects that, that you'll see. Well, okay, so in answer to your question, you know, I think it'd be irresponsible to not um, think really, really hard on, you know, where things are now and where, where they potentially are going to be in the future for you know, the island that we're on and, and the surrounding islands and everything. And 
course, all the, again, the local Virginia communities and how that's going to affect them. Um, actually, something I didn't mention earlier, but um, that I've been working on is a proposal in conjunction with Scripps Institute of Oceanography and, and a couple of uh, friends and associates of mine to do actually a pretty comprehensive study on currents and sand movement and water temperature. And Scripps has offered us uh, the use of some of the, you know, pretty advanced tech uh, to measure th these different things, you know, and I think it'll dovetail into our clam project really nicely because some some of these measurement tools can be placed kind of outside the clam area where, out of inside where, you know, one of the latest restaurants breaks and you can really measure the currents um, from that position as well as the temperature and oxygen levels and everything um, but we're also going to be you know throwing up drones once a week and this is about a three-year study probably just trying to map out with you know what these sand movements are doing right what's really fascinating to me um, you know uh, over time I've, I've noticed different ways the sand's moving and also in one area of the beach will be stripped away within a few days and will fill in on the other side of the island What's incredible about it is on our sister island of Motu, the same sand movements are literally mirrored on that island. So, for example, if a big chunk of sand is ripped off the south, uh, kind of the southeast corner, and placed over on the north side, the exact same, you know, uh, proportionate amount of sand is, is displaced on the Motu and, and put in the same area. So, you know, you contribute that. Okay, so these currents are—it's not just us. You know, it's the Motu and everything. But what scared me a couple of years ago is I had noticed giant chunks of beach ripped off and coconuts falling in where these coconuts have been around for decades, right? And all of a sudden they're falling in. So I'm like, whoa, this is kind of extreme. And so, again, I mean, some of it's cyclical, right? So it's, you know, are we on a five, 10 year cycle, 50 year cycle, 100 year cycle? You know, hopefully these, these islands have been around long enough that they've weathered, you know, several different periods of climate change. But, you know, I think we at least have to try to model what the sand's doing and, and what the, you know, with advanced technology and computers and everything else it's going to try to, to do that well I, I think you've created something really special here both on the island and uh, and you know with the, the marine life in the water and uh, you know and, and being out with the, all of your, your boatmen your surf guides who, uh, who just do such a good job of geeing everyone up whether it's 10 foot high break or 2 foot swimming pools so uh, thank you very much for, for having us as guests and, oh, and for being you. on the podcast well it's wonderful having you here and um yeah, it's, it's a definitely special piece of paradise. So thank you for enjoying it with us. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I hope that you have enjoyed the show. Um, I hope that you're going to go and check out some of the content that we've been making if you haven't done so already. But um, before we go, um, we'll throw in our, our regular what to watches and and. Uh, yeah, I guess we've got quite a lot to choose from, given that the last show we recorded was in May. Uh, so we've got sort of six months of content to go through. So, uh, uh, Jesse, what's your uh, what's your what to watch? Well, most of you might have seen this because this came out like right around quarantine and lockdown. But it's Laura Enever's Undone film. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's so amazing. It's women and big wave surfing, or specifically Laura in big wave surfing and it's just it's so beautifully done she's charging huge waves i think she surfs ship sterns in one of the parts and it's just insane and she's in this amazing white wetsuit <laughs> it's just like the most phenomenal 
women's surf video that I've seen. She is so impressive. And I don't know why. This shouldn't really matter. But the fact that she's just quite petite sort of makes it all the more impressive. Yeah. You know, she just doesn't look like what you imagine a big wave surfer looks like when you think of the Laird Hamiltons and Dave Columbus. Like, you know, she doesn't fit into that stereotype, which I think is so cool and refreshing. Yeah, and you know what else is super refreshing? It wasn't like her walking in a bikini on the beach for 30 minutes and then five minutes of surfing. It was like 30 or 40 minutes of her just surfing all of these different really big waves and her just charging. So um, if you haven't seen it, totally worth it. It's amazing. I think it's my new favorite women's surf video. That's a big title right there. But yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed watching that. Um, well, I'm going to recommend uh, two things that are connected. John John's entire YouTube account certainly for everything this year <laughs> yeah um the parallel c production side of john john um they've made some amazing series not just individual videos um and the one i would recommend is the the one where they sailed um from hawaii down to the northern line islands um kind of around the doldrums down there it's about 2,000 kilometers south of hawaii um and they went on this beautiful catamaran i think it's john john's i think he happened to buy it off travis rice um, may have made that up, but I think that's that's possibly correct. Um, and it's not specifically a surf film. It's more about kind of adventure. It has a message of, um, you know, protecting the, the uh, ocean. Um, and so they meet with a guide who kind of works along the, it, within the conservation of those islands. Um, they do a little bit of surfing on the way, lots of, you know, kind of uh, engage, uh, you know, engaging with them sailing, which is really cool. Um, and just, of course, because it's a John John movie, it's really beautifully put together. So um, it's a four part series. It's called Vela, V-E-L-A. Um, and I would recommend watching that one. Yeah, and I would I would add Tokyo Rising into that as well, which I know again isn't on uh, is not a YouTube thing, but is now on Amazon, Amazon Prime. I think you can watch it. Uh, that is a, a again a fantastic. I, I think it's a wonderful thing that's happening within uh, surfing over the last few years. Is that slightly more like the 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 storytelling aspect of surf movies um, coming back into it a little bit more? You know, that, that a little bit. Not that you, that there's still a lot of surf porn out there, but the, just those slightly more um, cerebral. And I think also one of the positive things with regards to surf films that might have come out of the lockdown is that a lot of people are now much more comfortable with subscription, you know, TV. I mean, you know, net, most people have got like Netflix and Amazon and maybe HBO or Apple TV as well. And just the fact that, you know, I'm guessing from my personal experience, but probably like 12 months ago, most people had Netflix and watched it a bit. And like during the lockdown this year, people were like really seriously got into streaming services. And the fact that it's been kind of normalized now and more, a lot more people are paying for it means that there is suddenly an avenue again that there hasn't really been for 10 years to be like a small, uh, like a small scale surf filmmaker, which you can then put your film out and actually get some remuneration for it, you know, whether you sell it to Amazon or, or Apple TV or whoever. So, you know, ho hopefully this new sort of norm of streaming services might spawn a new era, a new generation of, of surf filmmakers. Yeah, hopefully so. Uh, what, are your, uh, what are your recommendations, Ruth? Uh, I have two, actually. One of them is, you know, sadly this year, Derek Ho died. And there's an, an edit that someone's put together on YouTube that's the, the last five years of his life, his surfing during the last five years of his life. I think wasn't that Mason Ho that, that I, I think it, it was Mason Ho that put it together, who is his nephew, of course. And uh, Derek Ho was, was 
a world champion in 1993 and I believe was the first Hawaiian native-born world champion. And um, yeah, and just anyway, this video of the last five years of his life, so it's between 50 and 55, which is how old he was when he died. And he is just like surfing so hard and it's so inspirational, you know. And I, I, as I enter my early 40s, I'm like, in 10 years time, if I can be like close to that level of energy, that would just be amazing. So kind of sad to see Derek's passing, but such an inspirational guy. And that's a really cool uh, edit. Um, the other thing that I really enjoyed was Torin Martin's film where he rides down on motorbikes through New Zealand. And I've, uh, to be honest, during lockdown, I got really into Long Way Up, you know, the Ewan McGregor one where he rides up. So I've kind of got really into like motorcycle journey movies. Um, but it was interesting watching the Torin Martin one compared to South to Siam, the Deus one, where, you know, Harrison Roach is riding through Indonesia. And the, the, the Deus one is like this beautifully polished like artwork, whereas Torin Martin's one is like super raw, like this is what the reality of actually trying to camp with bikes is like. And, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't look easy at all. And they managed to get some really good waves. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's a really cool adventure. And it really makes me want to go to New Zealand. Yeah, I, I, I spent a couple of months in New Zealand about a decade ago. And I would love to get back there. Um, so my what to watch, I actually really struggled with this one because I went back through my YouTube history. And I realized that I almost completely disengaged from surf content from other surf content you know we we were so we were making so much of our own and uh you know the the big ones like Tokyo Rising and the the that um Torrin Martin what was it Lost Tracks yeah uh you know I I, I watched those and I really enjoyed them but it, I, I wasn't watching a ton of the sort of vlogs and blogs and and, and stuff that was coming up but the 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 couple that I did enjoy uh, Brett Barley we've mentioned in the past and he he does a great job. Well, here's the thing. He actually he has a very like constant supply of stuff that he puts out, which is is okay. You know, it's 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 for what it is. It's well edited, well put together. But the thing I think he does very well is every now and then he does a how-to, and um, he did a couple of how-tos over the break. Uh, I think one of them was about how to just get into a really really small tight barrels. Um, which is someone pushing six foot one. I appreciate <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah I, I I just I really enjoy like he he's able to talk about surfing in such a technical way um, it's it's very refreshing to watch. but the other thing that I have enjoyed and I, I've just kind of um, I'm going to apologize because I haven't listened to them all and I feel like I should do they they're out as YouTube videos, but I normally just have them on the in the background um, is Rob Case over lockdown has started a sort of i would say it's closer to a podcast with a friend of his who's a, a physiotherapist and they sort of do a split where rob dives into some of the physics and the science and uh, his buddy dives into some of the sort of physiotherapy again normally pulling out papers that have been published that have some relevance to surfing um, and they're quite long. They're like an hour or so long. But like I said, what I quite like to do is just have it on in the background, sort of as a, a radio show while I'm while I'm doing other things. So uh, I would definitely I, th I, th I think these called them surf talk, but I'll um, I'll double check on that uh, and I'll post a couple of links in the uh, in the show notes as always. So, yeah, if uh, if you want to check any of this out or any of the stuff that we've been talking about over the course of this episode, then uh, go to surfsimply.com uh, stroke podcast and we'll uh, 
we'll have it all in there. Well, on that note then, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for now, from all of us, uh, take care. Happy 2021. Hopefully, uh, this will be the year when we're all able to go back to, uh, to the old normal rather than the new normal. And uh, yeah, hopefully we will, uh, we will see you or hear you or interact with you in some way on the internet. Uh, over the next few months. Happy New Year, listeners. Take care. Bye-bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.